God, we love you. We give you praise. We give you thanks. We give you honor. We give you glory. God, it all belongs to you. We, we come in this place during this hour to worship you, to give all of that to you, to give honor and glory and praise to you, God. None of us deserve that honor or glory or praise. None of us desire that glory, honor, and praise. We want to give it to you. It is you deserve it. So God, I pray, as I pray every week, that you would speak through me this morning. God, that the words that are coming out of my mouth would be your words and not mine for your people on your day. God, we are here for you and for no other reason. God, no one needs to hear from me today. We all need to hear from you. So God, I pray that you would speak through, these, through this passage in Revelation today. Would you just, would you open up our hearts and minds to hear from you? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have been uh, on a journey so far. We are at the midway point in this series, in this journey, through the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3, as we have been looking at these letters that Jesus sends to his churches uh, in these seven different cities. And so uh, I want to review, and I'll review in a second, but I want to just remind you uh, that this series is not about end times. This is about now times. This is about how can we, as a church, heed the warnings of these these churches in Revelation and live more like Jesus is calling us to live. How can we watch out for the things that these churches are, are being called out for? How can we not fall into the same traps that these churches have fallen into? So far, we've talked about three churches. We've talked about Ephesus the first week. And Ephesus is one that as I keep talking today, I want you to keep in your periphery. I want you to keep Ephesus in your mind because here's the words of Jesus to Ephesus. He basically says this, you have been faithful. I see you. You've been faithful. You've worked hard. You have persevered. You have tested as people have come in and tried to give you some bad theology, some bad doctrine. You have tested all of those people and have come out on the right side. In Ephesus, there is a, there's an emphasis on, on truth, and there is a protection of the truth. There is a guarding of the truth in Ephesus. You have, you, have, you have guarded my truth. You have done well. You have tested the people coming in trying to say false things, but I have this against you, he says. You have forgotten your first love. You've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten what you were doing at the beginning. And I, I mean, he called them to repent, to do what they had done at first. This is the church in Ephesus. In the second week, we talked about the church in Smyrna. Smyrna, remember, is a, is a very poor church in a very rich town. And Jesus says to them, I see you, which is a common, a common thing that Jesus is saying to these churches. I see you, and I know that you're poor. I see what you're going through. I see your suffering. I see the persecution that you've been going through in this city. I see it. But you are rich. Even though you do not have wealth, even though you do not have money, even though you don't have anything necessarily of earthly importance, you have me. And so you are rich. The question I posed to you that week, and hopefully it's been a question that has been kind of wrestling in your mind as you've been thinking about Revelation, if you lost everything, would Jesus be enough? If you lost everything, would Jesus be enough? This church in Smyrna lost everything, and Jesus was enough. 
And last week we talked through the city, this, this letter to the church in Pergamum, also in, in chapter 2, 12 through 17. And in Pergamum, there is this, a, a battle for truth going on. Right? There, is a, there is a battle for the minds of the people in Pergamum. There are so many other gods. There are, there are gods for pretty much everything in this city. There are, there are even four patron gods, four city gods that people worship. And, and then there's the church who worships none of those gods, who worships the one true God, but is allowing some things to come in and distract. They've allowed some things to come in and distract and to tear them away. And, 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 and the question really is, have, have we let anything in our lives become gospel that is not of God? <clears throat> have we let anything in our lives that, that is... That is not of God. Have we separated our lives so much so? Have we compartmentalized our lives so much so that we have our, our Christian selves over here and then on Monday through Saturday we have our, our normal selves over here and the two don't necessarily need to meet and we can justify it with a lot of different things. Most likely grace is a justification but is not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to a, a complete life transformation, a complete life hand over to him. This is what the church in Pergamum is struggling with. There's a similar struggle in the church that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the church in Thyatira, uh, which is the next church in these letters. It's in chapter 2, starting at verse 18, if you want to get there in your Bibles. Uh, if you're in one of our pew Bibles, uh, it's on page 1063. Uh, and, but as you're turning there to this church in Thyatira, I want to give you a little background on, on this place that Jesus is writing to. See, Thyatira, uh, we're, this is kind of the, the longest letter of all of the letters that we have been given here in the first few chapters of Revelation. This is the longest letter that Jesus writes. There's actually an author uh, who, who wrote a book on the seven churches, and he said this about this letter to Thyatira. It's the longest, he said, the longest and most beautiful, or the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. Did you catch that? Thyatira is not a town of importance. It is not a town that is kind of like the, in the upper echelon of towns. It's not an elite town. It's not a, a very popular town, but it is a very important town nonetheless. See, Thyatira is the only city that we're going to talk about during these seven weeks whose city is not on a hill, who is not protected from their enemies. They, have, they are basically defenseless. They are in the middle of a plain, defenseless in all directions, Thyatira is. Right? But they are they're an important city. There's a reason why they are there. They are smack dab in the middle of a trade route between Europe and Asia Minor. Here's, here's the role of Thyatira. If you are going to buy and sell and trade goods... Basically, in the entire known Roman world, you are going through Thyatira. It's kind of a, a stopping point. It's kind of a point where people come and they trade. They, they do some things there, but that's usually a, we're passing through Thyatira. Right? In Thyatira, though, there are, there are, uh, it's a unique city. It has a unique position there, like I was saying. It, but, and and uh, archaeologists have found more evidence of trade guilds here than anywhere else. 
Here's what a trade guild is. We kind of talked about this last week as we talked about the, uh, the occupational jobs, the vocational gods that people had. Right, they had these, these guilds, these, these vocational guilds. You can think of it sort of like a, a, a union, but, but a little deeper than that. It's a little deeper rooted than just a union. It is a, it's a place where uh, all of the people, say there's a, the, Thyatira had two big ones. There was a, there was a bronze guild and there was a, a dyer uh, guild, which is people dyeing fabric and all that. I'll talk about that in a second. But they had these, these trade guilds. And in these trade guilds, you would band together with a group of, of workers in your position, in your occupation, and you would have each other's backs. You, would, you were essentially a union, but they were there for protection. If you lost your job, there was some protection there. There was, there was essentially a family of people who knew what you were going through and who could support you and, and help you along your way to getting your way back up in this occupation. There was, a, there was these trade guilds. Each of these trade guilds, like we talked about last week, had its own deity, had its own god. And these trade guilds would get together and they would worship these gods. The most common god that these trade guilds would worship in Thyatira was a god named Apollos. Apollos was the son of Zeus. They would call him the son of God. And they would, they would worship Apollos. They would go and they would gather together and they would have parties similar to the one that we talked about last week where there was a lot of food, a lot of drink, a lot of sex, a lot of just bad stuff going on. And so you can imagine being a Christian in this community with a job. You would be almost forced to go into one of these guilds just for protection's sake. If you didn't enter one of these guilds, you'd, you pretty much weren't going to get hired anywhere. You weren't going to have a job unless you made it your own, unless you, you were the owner, unless you made this job. It was, it was not going to happen. It was not a very pleasant thing to do. And so there is this tension in Thyatira between, okay, I, I want to serve God. I love God. And we'll see this in a second. They, the church in Thyatira loved God. There was no question about that. Jesus commends them on their love. But there was this tension between how do I love God and do my job? and be in one of these guilds. I can't worship this other God because I love my God. But if there was a way, and there's this, there's this tension there. Like I said, there was a couple, couple of the, the bigger guilds there. There was a bronze guild. That was the biggest one in Thyatira. The second one was a, uh, was a dyer guild. And uh, that was just basically people that dyed fabrics. It was their job to dye fabrics. One of the most famous fabrics that come from Thyatira or are, or are prevalent in Thyatira is purple fabric, which is an important thing. Purple fabric is hard to make. There are only a couple different ways at this time that you can make the purple fabric. And purple fabric was expensive. If you could afford purple fabric, you were rich, which is why purple was the royal color. Kings and queens and, and kingdom, the, the leaders of kingdoms would wear purple just to, just to symbolize, like, I am a have. You might be a have not, but I have. I am wearing purple. I am rich. I am wealthy. I'm in charge. Thyatira was a lot where a lot of the purple fabric came from. In fact, the only other mention in the New Testament that we have of Thyatira 
kind of, kind of talks through this a little bit. And actually, it's in Acts chapter 16. You don't have to go there. I'll read it for you real quick. Acts chapter 16, we meet a, we meet a lady named Lydia. Paul is, is, uh, is in Philippi, just outside of Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who gathered there, the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. So we see there's this, this is the only other mention of Thyatira in the New Testament, in Scripture, and we kind of see this connection. Lydia, before she came to Christ, may well have been part of one of the guilds that we are talking about and that Jesus is kind of pushing back on in this letter. Lydia might have, might have done that. Right? And, and, and like I said, every guild had, had a deity. And as a Christian, there was a lot of things that were not okay on a lot of levels going on. So how did this church do? How did this church do in this setting? What does Jesus say to this church? Revelation chapter 2. Starting at verse 18. And again, we'll probably uh, kind of go verse by verse here. We'll take it a little slower. I'll stop a lot of places because there's a lot to dig into here as, as we go. So, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I want to stop as we do every week and just look at how Jesus introduces himself to these people in this church. This is how Jesus addresses himself. He, address, he addresses himself as the Son of God. I love this because in this city of Thyatira, there was a lot of worship of who? Apollo, who was called what? The Son of God. And so it's like Jesus is calling to this church and he's saying, look, this is who's writing to you. I am the Son of God. Apollos is, is, is not true. I am the Son of God. I am who you know that I am. I am the Son of God, not Apollos. And, and honestly, from this imagery that we get of Jesus, he's a little bit heated right now. Right, he's got eyes of blazing fire. We read this, this imagery of him earlier in Revelation in, one chapter, in, in chapter 1, verse uh, 14. We read it also at the end of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22, and Jesus is, is coming into the city on the white horse, and he's, he's basically waging war against the beast. And it says that his eyes are like blazing fire. Jesus is, is heated in this moment. Jesus is writing this letter and he's saying, look, I am the Son of God. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Maybe a nod, a tip of the cap to the bronze, uh, the bronze guild here, which was the biggest guild in the city. This is, this is who is writing this letter. This imagery is just, he's, he is coming in power. This is, a, this is an image of a, a powerful God that is writing. We'll move on here. Verse 19. This is the I see you moment in this letter. I see you. Every church, Jesus kind of tells them, I see you. I see what's going on. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more 
than you did at first. I know your deeds. And there are, he kind of separates out these deeds four different ways. I see your deeds. I see your love. I see the way that you love other people. This church that Jesus is writing to is marked by love. I want you to see the contrast here between this church and Ephesus, who did all of the right things but forgot their love. This is Jesus writing to this church in Thyatira and saying, "I, I see your deeds. And the very first thing he says is, I know your love. And it's not just a, it's not any just kind of love. This is an agape love. This is unconditional kind of love that this church is being known for and noted for by Jesus. They're marked by their love for others. I see your faith. They have faith that God is going to supply their needs, that God is going to come through. They have faith that everything that they are going through is worth it. I see your deeds of service. They're serving others. They're not just caring for others. They are are serving for others. I mean, you, you read these first three and you just, you get kind of this imagery of kind of the, the roots of who we are as a denomination. Our faith and our love and our service. These are kind of the, the roots of what it means to be a Nazarene. This is what the Nazarene church was built upon. Right? I see all of this in this church and I see your perseverance. I see your ability to not quit. I see that you are holding fast to what it means to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in your community. I see you. I mean, you look at this description, and you, in any other, any other time, if you, if you were to stop there, every single one of us would say, that's not just a good church, that is a great church right there. That is a church that loves, that cares, that is known for their faith, that perseveres even in the hard times. This is a great church that Jesus is writing to here. But I want to just, just make note of the things that are separating this church from Ephesus that I think will help us make sense of some things that Jesus says later on. Remember in Ephesus, Jesus says, I see you, I know your hard work, and I know you are testing everything that you hear. There is, there is no mention on the side of Thyatira about any sort of hold on to what truth is. There's no hold on to, there's no kind of profession of you are, you are holding fast to my truth. There's, they have faith. They have faith that God is who he says he is. He can do the things he says he does, right? But there is no kind of hold on to doctrinal truth. There is no kind of uh, protection of that truth. So this church in Thyatira is marked by their love, but there's no mention of their kind of grasp or protection of truth. This church over here in Ephesus is marked by their protection of the truth, their protection of doctrine, but they have forgotten their love. You see the the two kind of contrasted here. I think it's a very interesting contrast as we move on here because Jesus, is begin- Jesus, as he does in all these letters, has something against this church. Verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
What is he referencing here? This eating of food, sacrificing to idols. What is he referencing here with this sexual immorality? He's talking about these, these guild feasts that we're talking about. This worship of these guild gods over there. And he mentions Jezebel. Now Jezebel, if you remember, is from First and Second Kings. She's married to King Ahab. And she does some, some damage, I think, to the people of God. She leads them astray a little bit. She leads them into, to away from just a pure worship of God into kind of a, a hybrid worship between God and Baal. And she kind of convinces the people of God that it will be okay if you do both. God understands if you do both. It's okay to worship God and to worship Baal. It is okay to kind of live in this tension. This is what Bath, uh, not Bathsheba, this is what Jezebel is about. And so we get this reference to Jezebel from that point on, from the historical Jezebel on, if you were to call someone a Jezebel, this is what you were referring to. Someone who kind of blurs the lines a little bit. Someone who kind of just, just says, says it's okay to live in this, this tension. Someone who leads the church astray. And Jesus says to this church, you, you have, what does he say here? You tolerate that woman Jezebel. There is someone in your church that is leading you astray and you are tolerating this. You are tolerating things that I do not tolerate and that I will not tolerate. And you can imagine what he's talking about here. It's not hard, knowing a little bit of the background of this city and what's going on, to imagine what Jesus is calling this church out of. There are people in the church living in this tension of, do I worship God or do I go to this guild worship and worship Apollos? And there is someone in their ear saying, it's okay. It's okay to live in this tension. It's okay to do both. God wants you happy God wants you to work. God wants you to get paid. And so do what you need to do. And there's encouragement of tolerating things that God does not tolerate. And to me, this sounds familiar. As we, we hear all the time that we should be Tolerating things that God does not tolerate. But how do we hold fast to the truth of the gospel? He keeps going here. He keeps going in verse 21. Sorry, I want to make sure I didn't miss anything there. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. You're tolerating this woman, Jezebel. I'm not going to tolerate it. I've given her some time to repent. She doesn't want to repent. He keeps moving on. Verse 22. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Again, Jesus, writing this letter, is a little heated. He's, he's, he's got a little fire in his voice in this letter. It's not just in his eyes, right? He's writing with some fire here. Like, this is, this is, not, a, uh, this is not a quick, 
encouraging kind of just dabble into this. Like, I have this against you, but it's going to be okay. This is, if you do not repent, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to come with some judgment. I'm going to come with some punishment here. And I'm going to come with some punishment in a few different ways. The first way is I'm going to put Jezebel on a bed of suffering. Now, this, this can mean a few different things, but we're, we're talking about this, this church being led astray, being, being tolerating this Jezebel, being okay with serving God and worshiping God, but also worshiping someone else because they feel like they have to. I, he says, I will put that on a bed of suffering. I will shut this down, is what Jesus is saying. I am not afraid to shut this down. I, I, I heard something the other day. I was at a pastor's conference uh, for our denomination. Every year we get together for a pastors and leaders kind of conference. And, and our district superintendent, Rob Songer, he said something that just kind of stuck with me and has kind of stuck with me, especially through reading this series. He said, uh, Jesus' church will always continue. Your church doesn't get that same guarantee. Jesus' church will always be. Your church might not. <laughs> this is, to me, kind of evidence of that. Of Jesus saying, look, my church is going to continue. Like, all this stuff is going to keep happening. I, I will win. If you read the rest of the book, he does, right? If you, if, if you, I will win this. But if you're not going to repent, I'm going to shut it down. It's just going to be done. I will put you on a bed of suffering. It keeps going. There will be, be more suffering. right? And, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Right? The people that have been led astray by the people in this church who are, who are following this, even they are going to suffer a little bit unless they repent. Right? There's, and then there's the verse 3, the death of the children. I will strike her children dead. I mean, I, I don't know what to say here. <laughs> I mean, we look at the historical Jezebel in 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, everyone who follows Jezebel is swept away. They are gone. They are taken out, essentially. Jesus is saying, look, you are following Jezebel. You are tolerating teaching that is not of me. You are worshiping someone you should not be worshiping. All of your worship goes to me. I think this, this letter is huge. This is a shot across the bow of the church to say, look, if you do not repent, if you cannot change, if you don't turn away from Jezebel, it's done. I will come with, with judgment. I will come with fire. I will come for you. And I think there's, in the same way that it was dangerous for the Ephesians to hold on to truth and forget love, I think it's dangerous for this church of Thyatira to hold on to love 
and neglect the truth. I think if I, if, if I get anything from this letter for our church, it is that we need to hold up and we need to exalt both love and truth. We need to be people who are both, who are, yes, known by our love, known by our service, known by our faith, known by our perseverance, like this church in Thyatira, but also known by our hold on to the gospel. That we know this word, that we hold on to this word, that we, that we test everything that comes at us. And, and I know there are some of you who do. Because if I ever say something in any of my sermons that is just a, just a, a tin job, I hear about it. I know that you are testing me as I am preaching to you, and I wouldn't want it any other way. But I, I want us to be a church that holds on to truth and holds on to love. Verse 24 and 25, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, so this wasn't the whole church that's going through this, this is just a piece of the church. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold on to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except this, except to hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on. There are some of you who get it. There are some of you who are living right. There are some of you who, who know what you're doing, who are living the right way. And to you, I would just say this. I don't hold anything else against you, but hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you've been given. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to this love, to this faith, to this perseverance, to this service. To your de- Hold on to all of this. Hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on. Verse 20, uh, 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter, with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. This is, a Psalm, this is Psalms 2, by the way. Uh, I have received authority, uh, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I really want to focus on this, this imagery of the morning star. Here's what you receive if you are victorious. If you do my will to the end, Jesus says, you, I will give that one the morning star. What is the morning star? Short answer, The morning star is Jesus. The morning star is the presence of Christ. I mean, we see the imagery of the morning star in Numbers chapter 24 and 2 Peter chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22. We see the imagery of the morning star and every single time it is in reference to the person and presence of Jesus Christ. He's saying, if you are victorious, if you hold on to what you have been given, if you will repent of your ways of of tolerating some other worship within yours, if you will repent of this and hold on to your ways, the one who is victorious will receive the morning star. You will be in my presence. You will have eternal life with me forever. I don't know that there's a better goal. I don't know that there's a better gift. 
I don't know that there's a better reward for holding on, for staying true to the gospel, for staying true to Christ, holding on to truth, holding on to love. There's not a better reward than to be in the presence of Christ forever and ever. We need, as a church, to know the truth. We need, as a church, to hold on to the truth. We need to be known for our love and our service and our perseverance and, and, and our faith. That, those are things that, that I think we can be known for, but we need to be held, known for our hold on the truth as well. The, the challenge is somewhat similar to last week's challenge. Last week in Pergamum, we talked about this, this battle for truth that is going on in the city of Pergamum. This battle for truth that says, look, there's, there is one gospel here. There is one God to worship. There are not these, these many gospels that you have the opportunity to worship. There, are, there is so much confusion in Pergamum. I think the same is said in, in, in Thyatira, but just maybe to a lesser extent because there's not a whole lot of confusion. There's just a tension between do I stay true to the gospel? Do I stay true to Jesus and my faith? Do I stay true to God? Or can I dabble in this over here as well? I cannot overstate the danger of dabbling. I cannot overstate the danger of not holding true to the gospel. To open that door up and to say, basically to read scripture and to say, I, I, I want it to say this and so it says this. To open up scripture and to be able to justify what we're doing by, by just contorting and, and changing context and all this different stuff, this, there's a danger in that. Our task as a church is to hold fast to the truth, to know this book, to be accountable to God's word, to be accountable to the gospel. And we have ways built in at this church for you to do that. Right, there are ways for you to be accountable to this gospel. There are ways for you to be accountable to the truth that people can, can, can hold to you and say, look, this thing that you're doing over here is not of God. This thing that you worship over here, this thing that you go and that distracts you from the presence of God, it is not right. We have small groups. There's no better way to stay accountable than in a small group. As you are vulnerable and open and sharing about what God is doing in your life and how, how you're struggling with a certain passage, this one this week, as we talk about, as we talk about this scripture, how am I struggling with this? How do I feel about this? And there's other people in the community that can hold you accountable to, to your beliefs. Are you holding fast? Are you holding strong to the truth of the gospel? We need to hold the truth. We need to be accountable to that. We also need to know the truth. As you walked in this morning, you saw connect, grow, and serve. This is the whole point of grow, is that you would come to know the truth, that you would come to know God for who he is, that you would become to mature into the image of Christ. Amen. If there's anything you learn from Thyatira, let it be this. It is dangerous in the same way that it was dangerous for the Ephesians 
to hold on to truth and forget love. It is dangerous to hold on to love and forget truth. We need to, to, uh, to, to lift up love, to lift up truth, to chase after both. And I think as we do that, we will mature into a more complete and mature image of Christ in our lives. See, it's one thing as individuals to say we're struggling with this. Jesus isn't writing this letter to an individual. He's writing this letter to a whole church that is struggling with this tension of of holding on to the truth. Our church will be a church that holds on to truth. That holds on to the gospel. But let's not be like the Ephesians either and forget our love. Let's do both. Let's be a church that, that holds up love, holds up the truth, and chases after both. Let's pray. God, we love you. We give you praise. We give you thanks. We give you honor. We give you glory. God, it all belongs to you. God, would we hear this church in Thyatira? Would we come to know and understand that this could easily be us? That as we let other things kind of infiltrate the gospel, infiltrate what truth is, that we, we water down the gospel. We fail to live as you are calling us to live. And so God, would you, would you call us out of that in the same way that you called the church in Thyatira? Would we hold on to truth while remaining to hold on to our love and our faith? Would we hold on to both? Will we lift them up and chase after both? Will we be people who, who are known by our love and also by truth? God, would you go with us this week? Go ahead of us. Be in our workplaces. Be in our homes. Be in our cars. Be in our grocery stores. Be wherever we may meet anyone, God. And would you just be in our conversations? Would you give us openings to talk about you <clears throat> and to share you, to share your love, to share your gospel? Would we make a difference in our community this week? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? If you're new here, I just want to, at the end of every service, it, it kind of feels weird, I know, but I just ask you to hold out your hands and just... Just receive a blessing from God as you leave, a blessing from God over your week. So let me just, uh, just say this word of blessing over you. May our God, God of grace and love and hope and peace, may he give you confidence this week. May he empower you to go out and to live this gospel that we cling to. And may you make a difference in your community wherever you may find yourself. Go in the grace and peace of our Father. Son, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit. Amen and amen.